Blessed you, Adonai, our God, King of the universe, who set us apart in order to sanctify us with his commandments and instructed us to occupy ourselves with the words of the Torah. Adonai, our God, please make the words of your Torah pleasant in our mouths and in the mouths of your people, the family of Israel, so that we, our offspring, and the descendants of your people, the family of Israel, all of us, may be knowers of your name and learners of your Torah for its own sake. Blessed are you, Adonai, who teaches Torah to his people, Israel. Blessed are you, Adonai, our God, King of the universe, who chose us from all the nations of the world to give us his Torah. Blessed are you, Adonai, giver of the Torah. All right. So a light night. Everybody's busy. I beg your pardon? Yeah, we got the top. Sh- we got the top shelf guys here tonight. That's exactly right. Absolutely. All right. So I wanted to uh, touch on two things tonight. First is just uh, a review of some of these sages that we'll be reading about and what that Pirkei vote is all about. And I want to try and bring my friend Ken up to speed here so that he doesn't feel like, well, a non-kosher pickle in the midst of the jar. Okay. So. Um, We'll, we'll begin with uh, an extraordinarily quick overview of the timeline. Are you familiar with the timeline? Have we done the timeline? Briefly. Okay, so we're not going to embarrass you and have you stand up here on one foot and give us the timeline. I'm going to give you the timeline quickly, and I don't want you to take notes. I want you to just listen. I want you to grasp it. I want you to hear it. I want you to feel the timeline, okay? So I'm pointing to this corner here. This is my base corner. This is today. This is right now. Every wall is a thousand years. So I move from today, I back up a thousand years, and it's about 1,000 in the Common Era. You're familiar with Common Era versus BC, AD? Yeah, okay. So 1,000 in the Common Era, and I back up another wall, that's another thousand years, so I'm down to zero. This, of course, is where the Master is, Yeshua HaMashiach, Yeshua the Messiah. Back up another thousand years, and now I'm a thousand before the common era, and another thousand, and that's where we'll start. So we'll just do a 4,000-year deal. So here in this corner, we have Abraham, 2,000 years before the common era. Okay? So I've got Abraham. I've got another tzaddik in this corner, King David. I've got another king and tzaddik in this corner, Yeshua. I've got a tzaddik in this corner, and that would be Rashi greatest commentator the world has ever known. You open up your Bible, you've got line-by-line commentary. Unbelievable. Where did we get that? Every single line's got some kind of commentary. Rashi did it first. No computer, no ballpoint pen. Line-by-line commentary on the Torah, and then later on the entire Tanakh. Unbelievable. Rashi. And then, a thousand years later, now we have another tzaddik in that that's you, Ken. So, I start with Abraham. I move a thousand years to King David. We have a united kingdom. There's peace. It's an amazing thing. Solomon takes over. And he is known around the world as being a wise king, following in his father's footsteps. Has a little problem with the women. He dies. And now we have problems. The kingdoms are split. The 12 tribes, we've got 10 north, 2 south. Benjamin and Judah in the south. Everybody else up north. We've got a right guy and a wrong guy. The right guy is Rehoboam, 
right, Rehoboam, he's in the south, Judah, and Benjamin, he is the son of Solomon. Jeroboam, it rhymes, but he's not the same guy, uh, is in the north. This is the guy that set up the two high places. Don't go down to Jerusalem for those three feasts. No, 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 no. Why would you go down there and give them all your money? No, no, no. Stay up here in our land. Let us have your revenue. He set up high places in Dan and Bethel. In those high places, we also had a golden calf. Unbelievable, but true. Yes. All right, so we've got problems split. People aren't doing too well. They're not following the commandments. And God says, if you don't follow the commandments, I'll spew spew you out of the land. Specifically in this case, we see that they did not keep the Shemitah year. They didn't give the land its rest as it's supposed to have. So, because we've got no rest in the land, they are kicked out. And we've got the split going to... Look at you, skinny. We've got uh, the split going to Babylon. And this is the first exile. We're doing the uh, review of the calendar, uh, the timeline here for Ken. So, the northern ten tribes go out. A little while later... The southern tribes go out as well. A little while later, Babylon takes over Assyria, which is the country that took the northern tribes. So for all intents and purposes, both the northern and the southern tribes are actually all in Babylon. And then we've heard the sad news that eventually, after the prophets have talked to the people and told them, Darius decides to let the people come back to go rebuild Jerusalem and rebuild the temple. Sadly, only about 42,000 go back. It's an amazingly small number when you compare it to what they had. So most of the people stayed in Babylon. So that's right around the middle of this wall. So I want you to think about your Bible. You start with Genesis. You go all the way to the maps. We back up to that page that everybody thinks is the difference. Old Testament, New Testament. When you take that white page and you go to Joshua... Everything from Joshua to that one page are known in the, in the professional Christendom as the prophets or the writings and stuff like that, the history books. It's all right here. Okay, All the prophets are in this half of this wall. The Torah starts in Genesis and goes all the way to Deuteronomy. Then we go through the history of Joshua and Judges, Ruth and so forth. But you've got Joshua and Judges here. Then you've got 1 Chronicles, 2 Chronicles, 1 Kings, 2 Kings, 1 Samuel, 2 Samuel, all that stuff. That's all right here. All the prophets, every single one of them, are right here. There's 12 minor prophets. There's six major prophets. They're major and minor only because of the size of their books, not because of you know great guys or anything like that. They're all right there. Most people don't realize that. A 500-year span. So these guys come back right around the middle of this wall. And they are still under Babylonian rule, or by this time, Babylon and then Medo-Persia, right? So they're under Media or Persian rule at this point. But they're allowed to build the city, build the walls, build the temple. It takes them a while. They get kicked in the fanny, but the prophets are there. The Book of Ruth... Um, the book of Esther, I beg your pardon, right here. 
right? So we just went through Purim. That's right here. And so it's this period of time that we want to look at tonight here in the period of what's called the men of the great assembly. It starts with Ezra, Nehemiah, um, Zerubbabel, and those guys. They're right here. They're rebuilding. They're fighting against their enemies, and they're setting up. And then something terrible happens right about here. Alexander conquers the world. Right? Right, right before that. So now that we've got a Greek world, Alexander's got it all. He dies. Everything's split up amongst his four generals. We remember David died. It went to Solomon. When Solomon died, it was split up between Jeroboam and Rehoboam. Rehoboam was the guy, R, right. Okay? So here we've got Alexander taking over the world in about 300. 250, we've got the people in Alexandria, Egypt, is one of the largest populations of Jews on the planet. There's three populations of Jews on the planet. One, obviously, is Babylon, because most of the people didn't come back. Second would be in Alexandria, Egypt. And then third would be in, in the land itself. So in 250, the Hellenist Jews, those that are starting to forget how to speak Hebrew and certainly can't read it, probably just as bad off as you and I, ask to have the Torah, in fact, the entire Tanakh, translated into Greek. Great idea, stupid implementation. I think it was the worst thing that could have possibly happened. But they did it, and there we go. Now we've got the Greek Old Testament, and it acts as a uh, Rosetta Stone, if you will, for the Greek New Testament. So we can see and compare words and whatnot. After that, we've got the Jews milling about and arguing with the various folks that are over them, and we end up at a certain point at about 200, 165, and so forth. Um, we end up with a true Jewish state again. These guys are ruling themselves. They're minting their own coins. It's a tremendous thing. When does that start? Well, it, it starts when we've got all kinds of calamity going on between those four generals and the Seleucids and the Ptolemies and the armies that are above and below Israel and so forth that have been split up from Alexander's rule. And that's when uh, Antiochus Epiphanes, the, the guy who thinks he's God, comes in and wants to set himself up as God, put his bust in the temple, sacrifices a pig on the altar, stuff like that. And one of the priests stands up and says, you know, I'm not, I'm not doing this. There's a big fight. We have, a, we have a holiday called Hanukkah that came out of it. And the Maccabees and this priestly family kind of takes over and actually sets up rule. So the, uh, I guess the nephew of the guy that started that whole deal became actually enthroned as king. So he's high priest and king at the same time. But the king was always supposed to be from the line of David, not from the line of Levi. So we've, we've got sort of a, a problem here. And the priesthood becomes corrupted. The kings are placed uh, out of the line of Levi rather than Judah. And it's an issue. There's a lot of infighting. This is where we get the whole Pharisee-Sadducee thing starting. The Sadducees started here. It seemed to be pretty good. 
the Pharisees um, and Sadducees are arguing about whether the whole Torah is or the whole Tanakh is inspired and whether there's an afterlife, whether there is a heaven, whether there is a soul and stuff like that. And the Pharisees, which become modern-day rabbinic Judaism, are really implanted here and fighting for uh, dominance uh, amongst the, the ruling families there. The high priesthood is sold by Rome uh, to certain families. You know, you buy it and you can get into it rather than being passed on from father to son and so forth. Um, the high priest was always one guy at a time for life. You know, we've already read in the Torah, um, actually not, not this year yet, right, about uh, the cities of refuge. Moses was told to set up cities of refuge, three outside the land, three inside the land, and so forth. And that's where you go. If you kill somebody accidentally, right, you got to stay there. How long? Till the high priest dies. Then you're free. So it's one guy, and it lasts from the time he's inaugurated until he dies. Well, now you got high priests, and it's being bid out by Rome. Well, when am I allowed to leave? It's, everything's just messed up. It just doesn't work anymore. You know, and at, at one point we've got like four or five, sometimes six different high priests actually alive all at the same time. This guy was last year. This guy was the year before. This guy is this year. You know that kind of thing. It's just it's just all messed up. Um, but it's in this area right here uh, that we we hear about the zugot, the pairs. And these are the guys that are actually heading up the Sanhedrin, or the ruling body for for Greater Israel. They're the, the Supreme Court, if you will. Okay, so we've got 70 sages and or 69 sages and two guys in charge. You've got a, a, a prince or head of the Sanhedrin, a president called a Nasi. And then you've got his right-hand guy who's called the Av Beit Din, the father of the house. And uh, he's the vice president, if you will. And uh, normally they, they had them the, the two heads from opposing parties so they kind of hold each other in check. So what we want to talk about tonight is these zugot, these pairs that were in charge. So they led from the men of the great assembly into these pairs and there was um, five of those pairs and the last pair that we're uh, very familiar with are Hallel and Shammai. And right after them, Hallel died probably in... 20 of the common era so roughly Yeshua is about 20 and uh, 10 years later Shammai the last guy died he died in 30 of the common era well that's interesting as soon as the last Zugo died Yeshua starts his ministry I think that's curious I'm going to write a paper on it someday but I haven't gotten to it yet but uh, something to think about. So, the idea is that if we're looking at the Talmud, the oral law, we're looking at the mountain, Mount Sinai, God delivers the law to his people. Well, the sages would say that he also gave them the little, he gave Moses the, the details about how to keep some of it that's not written down. That was passed on orally, the oral tradition from guy to guy to guy. And they can tell you exactly who it was, from Moses all the way to Judah Hanasi, Judah the Prince, or he's known as the rabbi. Okay? So the reason I bring that up is because 
the Zugot are in that chain. The great men of the great assembly to the Zugot. Okay? So what we do traditionally from Passover until Rosh Hashanah, that's that's the hot part of the year for us, right? That's half the year. Is every Shabbat we read a chapter in the Pirkei Avot. The Pirkei Avot, most people think is is the ethics of the fathers. That's really a poor translation. It really is. Avot does mean fathers, but it's it's actually head or principle. And so it's really the the principles of ethics that we're reading about. They just happen to also have been stated and uh, codified, if you will, by the by these fathers or sages of old. Okay? So the Pirkei Avot is what we're going to be reading starting this Shabbat. We'll read chapter 1. Next week we'll read chapter 2. The week after we'll read chapter 3 and so forth. By the time we get to chapter 7, it'll be right before Shavuot because we've got seven sevens that we're supposed to be counting. Tonight we go to 11. Today is 10. And the sunsets will be at 11. So... We're really not counting the days as much as we are seven sevens. That's 49, and the very next day is Shavuot, or in Greek, it's Pentecost. Okay? So, what I want to look at tonight is just a couple of those zugot, or those pairs, so that when you start reading that stuff, you'll understand what you're reading. Okay? You with me? Does that work so far? Do you have a sitter at your home? How do you pray? Man. What's that say? Our school complete sitter. Complete sitter? No name in it? There you go. God bless you. Go in peace. The peace of God go with you. Okay. So. Um, Ken, help him find the Pirke of Odin there if you would. Um, Always works for me. So I want to talk about these who goat real quick. Got the leather backing. Yeah. Matches the phone. I say I got the leather backing, it matches the phone. Yeah. It's brown leather. Of course. Of course. That's exactly right. Okay. That's right. All right. So uh, if we open up the Pirkei Avot, actually, can you guys do that? You don't, most of you don't have a sitter with you. Isaac, would you pass out a couple of sitters, please? Um, what, what page are we turning to, Ken? 545 for the beginning of the Pirkei Avot. If I'm not mistaken, we, we open up with uh, Shimon the Righteous, and he's at about 275 before the Common Era. This guy is, uh, is a big deal. So is that, is that who opens it up? Greg, are we there? Is it Shimon the Righteous? Yeah. Okay. Shimon the Righteous is actually mentioned in the Talmud, 
He's mentioned in the book of Sirach. Who knows what the book of Sirach is? It's an apocryphal book. What does that mean, Ken? It means it was written in the, the void. <laughs> okay. It's, 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 yeah. It's, it's not in our Bibles, is it? Whose Bible is it in? It's in the Latin Vulgate, and therefore it's in the the Catholic Bible, or the Douay version. That's exactly right. So, um, those apocryphal books where we read 1st and 2nd Maccabees, Sirach, Bell and the Dragon, um, they're, they're really cool stories. Judith, yeah. I mean, they're, they're cool stories, and, and you might want to, you know, just check them out. Barnabas, Barnabas, right? So, you've got some good stuff there. It's, well, it's not, you just need to remember it's not scripture, right? I mean, you know, where, where somebody, you know, has a handful of rocks and they turn into pigeons and fly away. You know, I mean, that's cool. It's like watching Yeah, yeah. Well, I mean, it, it's it's apocryphal, and the Jews never accepted it as canonized scripture, but they see it as valuable historical stuff. Okay, so First and Second Maccabees is where we get the vast majority of our data about what happened at, at Hanukkah. You know, that whole fight and the miracle that happened there, and so forth. We find in First and Second Maccabees. So. Shimon the Righteous, he was the high priest during the, the time of the Second Temple, about 275. The Talmud, Sirach, which is in the uh, apocryphal books, and Josephus, and Mac, Second Maccabees all mention this guy. He's big. He is, he is, he is famous um, for being, well, a tariq. He, um, it is said that he rebuilt the damaged walls of Jerusalem. He raised the foundation walls of the temple's court to create a cistern. He burned the red heifer twice and built two bridges between the Temple Mount and the Mount of Olives. Hmm. Very cool. Known for his piety, deep concern uh, for other people and benevolence. Alexander the Great shows up in Jerusalem and it was Shimon that greeted him on behalf of the Jews, uh, Alexander wanted to put his uh, bust in the temple. And it was Shimon the Righteous that suggested that that might not be such a good idea. But, to appease him, he said that um, all of the priests born during that year would name their sons Alexander. How about that? We've, uh, we've all heard about what happened when uh, Miriam was alive. And, you know, we read about all these miracles that, you know, the water kept coming because Miriam was alive as soon as she died. And, Mir- you know, the water dried up and stuff like that. They, the same kind of things are told about Shimon the Righteous. The seven major miracles that happened. Um, I remember <clears throat> reading an account... it was, I heard, and I don't know how factual this is, but that when Alexander started making his push eastward, mm-hmm. it yeah. ultimately culminated in kicking the fanning of the Medes and the Persians. As he, as he came across, he arrived in Jerusalem, and the, the high priest, which perhaps Shemot. was Shemot, Shemot. I, I yeah. realize it was Shemot, uh, came out and greeted him, and 
one of the ways that he befriended Alexander the Great, you know, because Alexander just had this reputation of just total... Thunk! Yes. But he didn't destroy, he, he laid no harm, as it were, to Jerusalem. And one account that I read was that, that the high priest, which apparently was Shimon Hazadi, um, appeased him by, uh, by telling him that the prophecies in the book of Daniel prophesied of his victory yes. over the Medes and the per- Persians. This is before it's happened, right? Yes. He's making his way east. He hasn't actually really engaged them in, in, in a meaningful sense yet. Yes. And when he stops in Jerusalem, Shimon Hazadi says, you're going to be victorious. Well, how do you know that? Because it, our prophets... It's written down. It's written here. That's exactly it. That is the same guy. Yeah, okay. Right. Yeah. So how cool that, is that? That's kind of cool. Now, you see that uh, Yochanan... It was it Yochanan ben Zakai? Tell him that the... the <laughs> yeah, <brother> yeah. It's <laughs> <laughs> even more cool about Cyrus. It's mentioned by him. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Yo- Yochanan ben Zakai did the same trick. Pops out by him before he's born. Before he's born, yeah. Yochanan ben Zakai did the same deal, right? He's, that's what he does with Titus. He says, hail Caesar. He goes, I'm not Caesar. I'm just a general. And as he's saying it, Vespasian. Vespasian. As he says it, the writer comes up and tells him, Caesar is dead. Hail Caesar. <laughs> and that's why we have rabbinic Judaism today. Because he, was, he asked for the city of Yavni and that he could reconstitute the uh, Sanhedrin. But he did the same thing that he had heard from the legends that Shimon had done in 270-something. When you've got uh, Alexander showing up, he just gave him the scripture. He said, hey, you're going to be victorious. And I know that you will. Excellent. Some of the things that uh, Shimon uh, is during his tenure, these miracles that happened, I mean, um, just a a couple of... uh, uh, things, uh, the showbread, the two sacrificial loaves on uh, Shavuot, whenever the priest ate an olive-sived amount, he was already satisfied. Um, the lot um, that they threw for the scapegoat and the other goat that goes to Azazel, whatever it is, um, it always was in his right hand. Um, the red thread they tied around that particular goat turned white on the Day of Atonement. I mean, it's, it's stuff like that. Um, the light in the temple never failed. The fire around the altar only required a tiny amount of wood. I mean, they come up with some really cool stuff about this guy. Um, but I thought there was something very interesting. The sages say that after Shimon the righteous died, men ceased pronouncing the name of God aloud. Now, I don't know if that's true, but it certainly makes me stop and take pause. Hmm. Especially when we've got such a sacred name movement out these days. They stop pronouncing it out loud. The only guys who said it was the high priest, or not the high priest, but the priest who would put the blessing on the people. They were the only ones that said it. So then, uh, Yeshua wouldn't have pronounced it. Didn't you show me that on the Torah? In Hebrew, it's written, like you see 
how it's spelled, but it's You say Adonai. When you, when you see the name, you pronounce it Adonai. Well, is that how you say the name? I don't know how you say the name. It's not Adonai. Correct. But, you know, my point is that here's a guy so holy that they've got all these things about him, but... Here's this other interesting tidbit that after his death, men ceased pronouncing God's name aloud. I I just think that's curious that they would actually make note of that and have a time when that happened. It's just something to think about. I think your second uh, paragraph talks about Antigonus of Soco. Is that right? Yeah. Okay. Uh, He was... uh, He's the first known Pharisee. First known Pharisee. You've got, uh, you've got, it's the same time frame, you know, late 200s. Um, he rejected both the idea that one should be good in order to achieve a better position in the afterlife, which makes sense, and the biblical notion that one should obey the commandments in order to gain physical prosperity through owning, earning God's favor. So, you know, the whole... Yeah, thing we were just talking about there. I mean that uh, prosperity gospel stuff. Um, this two thousand years ago, he was already saying that's a bunch of hooey. Um, he is um, Antigonus of Soco is the first recorded Jew to have a Greek name, and why? It's happening. Right, it's happening. It is taking over. All right. Well, I think your next guy there is uh, Yossi ben Yoser, right? Uh, from a priestly family, he was a disciple of Antigonus, and uh, he was a member of the Hasid sect. He was these one of these pious ones. Um, the uh, he was one of the first of the five pairs that are listed in the Talmud uh, as uh, leading the Sanhedrin. He was big time against Hellenism. He was uh, big on uh, uh, being lenient, if you will, uh, sort of a forerunner for Hillel. Uh, his nickname was uh, He Who Permits uh, because he was, he was very lenient in those areas. Uh, deep reverence for Torah scholars and thought, and I think it's a, it's a wise thing, uh, that the teachers should be cared for, compensated. And uh, attending to the needs was a big deal for him. So that's the deal there. He was probably crucified in 161. I think the... Uh, Yossi ben Yochanan is your next guy, right? Is that right? Yeah. This guy is a native of Jerusalem. Nasi of the Sanhedrin in the 2nd century, uh, before the common era. He was also a Hasid. He was also opposed to uh, Hellenism. 
uh, pious one. Uh, um, yeah, devout. If we get the, uh, if we start our prayers, uh, Shakri prayers, that very first thing that the, the Chazan says, um, it talks about four or five different kinds of people, and, and one of them is Hasid, uh, the Hasidim. Um, this is the guy that led to the formation of uh, two different schools of thought in the, uh, in the Sanhedrin. So you've got the, the one side and the other side. Um, he was the, the last of the Eschalot, or wise men. Uh, he's the guy who says, let your home be open wide. And uh, he's big into uh, causing uh, hospitality to be your, your number one or, or major uh, character trait. So if, if you were in need... Definitely, you want to go over to his house, unless, of course, you're a woman and just, a woman and you just want to sit and chat because he was the guy that was completely against um, having long conversations with women. So you didn't want to do that. Uh, Joshua ben Perachaya, he was Nasi of the Sanhedrin uh, just before the second century ended, and uh, John Hyrcanus. Um, persecuted the Pharisees, and he was one of them. So around 140 before the Common Era. Um, uh, I don't think he was. Um, he fled. He came back, but he fled to Alexandria, Egypt. But I don't think he was a Hasmonean. No. Um, the persecution happened in 90 before the Common Era, and uh, he fled to Alexandria, Egypt, which is exactly what the Master did about Ten years later, twenty years later, fleeing to Alexandria, Egypt was, you know, we say was a common place of uh, uh, running you know, for political problems. Yeah, it was, and it had been done uh, because of this persecution of the Pharisees that had been done. Uh, let's see. I don't want to bore you anymore. I'll just do uh, one or two more here. Um, John Hyrcanus. Uh, was a Pharisee. He abandoned that, became a Sadducee, and uh, started uh, persecuting the um, the Pharisaic party. Uh, that was 134 to 104. And uh, John Hyrcanus was the son of Simon Maccabee. Um, he was the nephew of Judah Maccabee, which is the guy that stood up and fought. He led the revolt. The hammer. And... Um, This is uh, the whole not line of Judah, not line of uh, King David, so forth. And I guess that that'll do enough for you know we'll we get into some of the other guys over the next couple of weeks. We'll talk about them. Um, but the uh, the idea is that the Pirkei Avot begins with the Zugot. And these great sages that were right here, right before the master hit the scene. So we're reading the way they thought and what they what they were saying. Um, you've got some other. We're going to skip uh, pretty much this time in here, um, where the master's alive, and skip over that uh, in our readings in the Pirkei Avot. 
uh, to jump after the uh, temples destroyed. So I want to talk about uh, Shammai and Hillel, or Hillel and Shammai. Hillel was uh, Hillel and Shammai were the last pair of the five pairs, and they started right before the zero year. And Hillel, when he died, his son took over. And his son Simeon, when he died, Hillel's grandson took over. Who was Hillel's grandson? Gamliel. Important guy. So, put away your... um, Sitters, please take out your Bibles and let's take a look at a couple of uh, texts and see if we can't just figure out where we're reading and what we're learning about as we go in here. Hillel and, Shep- and Shemai were very competitive, as you know, um, or maybe you don't know. Um, but let's read. Um, you got Bible? I don't care. You do. Read for me Acts chapter 5. I'll give you the verses in a second. Ken, why don't you give me Acts chapter 22. I'll give you the verse in a second. Um, Greg, why don't you give me Matthew 7. And uh, Greg, why don't you give me Matthew 19. Johnny, why don't you give me Second Timothy 2. Whew, we're going to be all over the Bible. All right. So what I want to establish now is who was this guy Hillel? Is he mentioned or do we have any kind of ruminations from him as we walk through the Gospels and the Acts of the Apostles, the Apostolic Writings? So, Acts chapter 5, verses 34 to 39. Oh, yeah, gosh, that's tiny. But a Pharisee in the council named Gamaliel, a teacher of the the law, held in honor by all the people, stood up and gave orders to put the men outside for a little while. And he said to them, Men of Israel, take care of what you are about to do with these men. For for before these days, uh, Theodos rose up, claiming to be somebody. And a number of men, about 400, joined him. He was killed, and all who followed him were dispersed and came to nothing. And after him, Judas the Galilean rose up in the days of the census and drew away some of the people after him. He too perished, and all who followed him were scattered. So, in the present case, I tell you, keep away from these men and let them uh, alone. For if this plan or this undertaking is of man, it will fail. But if it is of God, you will not be able to overthrow them. You might even be found opposing God. So they took his advice. Okay, so we learn a couple of things here about Gamliel. First, he's got a great reputation. He's got such a great reputation that within a few years, he's actually going to be the head of the Sanhedrin. Because after Hillel and Shammai, they still got a Sanhedrin, but there's only one guy in charge. You don't have pairs anymore. So, when is he speaking? What Jonathan just read. When was that? 
Give me a guess. 3540? Right? 35 or 40 of the common era. On our wall, we're looking like, you know, pretty close to the corner. Right? Right about here. He talked about two different events. Uprisings, if you will. Trying to fight against either Rome or the Greeks or whatever it may be. Now, we know that they, we had a rising up in 165 by the Maccabees, right? And they won. They beat Rome. Great miracle happened here. Woohoo! Minted our own coins. We finally got a Jewish state that we're in charge of again. When's the last time that happened? Yeah, okay. Almost a thousand years before. Whoa, whoa, we're back in the land. We got our own coins. Woohoo! After that, Rome takes over. So sometime between 150, 140, before the Common Era, and 30 of the Common Era, Gamliel is talking about two events that took place. Are we clear? We got the timeline? We understand what's happening. Okay. So, he's, in, he's got great respect. Does it appear that he's against this Judaic sect that has risen up that is following Yeshua? Yeah, it's like, hey guys, leave these guys alone. We've, we've seen this before. If it's not of God, it's going to fail. But it is of God. My goodness, you'll, you, you're going to find yourself fighting against God, not man. He seems to intimate that he counts himself in that. He sure does. He sure does. At some point, he did Don't know. Don't know. But it's a great man. Okay. Acts chapter 22 and verse 3. I am a Jew born in Tarsus in Cilicia, but brought up in this city, educated at the feet of Gamaliel, according to the strict manner of the law of our fathers, tell us for God, as all of you are this day. Who's speaking? How many chapters you got in the book of Acts? 28. What chapter is he reading? How close are we to the end? The answer, pretty darn. Right? Paul's right near the end here. What's he saying? I'm a Pharisee. I was brought up as a Pharisee. I learned at the feet of the guy that you just heard about who's got great respect. He was my teacher. Shortly after Paul says that, who becomes the head of the Sanhedrin? That guy! In fact, uh, one interesting tidbit, which uh, Tim Hegg brought out in his book, The Letter Writer, which is great if you haven't read it, is... Uh, it's a double read, by the way. You can't get it in one. you got you got to double read that. Shaul, of course, is famous for his the epistles, right? All the epistles that he wrote to the various congregations. But uh, there's a reference in the Talmud of Gamaliel his teacher who would sit on the steps of the court going up into the, going up to the temple and he would pen letters or he would dictate letters to his disciples that were in, you know abroad you know in the outlying areas and Shaul presumably learned that technique for communication from Gamaliel because Gamaliel 
would write letters and send them to his disciples as a, as a regular standard practice. And what do we have? A whole bunch of letters from Paul. Excellent. All right, so Gamliel's a player, becomes a bigwig. Paul references and is actually trying to get some credibility by saying, I'm not a schmo. I was raised in the strictest sect, not in some wimpy city. It was right here. And Gamliel was my teacher. Woohoo! The cool thing it says in the first two is that and when they heard him, he was addressing them in Hebrew. In Hebrew, yeah. Oh, yeah. Yeah, he's stepping up. All right. So, I, I want to make sure we got the... the the play here. We've got the men of the great assembly leading into these ten, uh, these five pairs, these ten men, and Halel and Shemaiah are our last pair. Two iterations after them, Gamliel is actually in charge of the Sanhedrin. He's mentioned here by um, in uh, in the Sanhedrin as they're uh, trying to discipline Peter and John, and then. Later, we've got Paul claiming to be his disciple. It's a great thing. Yes, sir? You mentioned two iterations. So after the Zudo, there's no more. What was the term? Um, I think it was uh, until a guy died but, or got too old to deal with it. But Halel, when he died, so Shammai... Pretty much, yeah, yeah, pretty much, or until he got too old. Yeah, But when Halel died, Shammai was in charge for about ten more years. Maybe a little less. But Shammai died. I, I still think it's very curious that when the last Zugot died, he died in 30. Halel died in 20. Shammai died in 30. And as soon as that last guy died, the master, in the fullness of time, God sent forth his son. As soon as the last pair died, the master started his ministry. I just think that's... Extraordinarily curious, yeah. As soon as he died, the master stood up and did the wine deal at Cana and started his ministry. It was incredible. I mean, I think I don't just don't think the timing is coincidental. That's what I'm saying. As soon as Shemai dies, you'd think Shemai's son would take over because Shemai outlived Halal, right? But Shemai's son doesn't. Nobody really likes Shammai or the Shammaiites, and we see, you know, within a hundred years, if not less, Halal wins out. There's these 18 edicts goes away. But it's Halal's son, Shimon, that takes over as the head of the Sanhedrin. And when he's done, Gamliel takes over. Cool. Okay. With whom... Of the last pair, Hillel and Shammai, did the master normally agree? Hello. Hello. You sure? I mean, it took you a second to think about that, no? No. Hello. Yes, sir. Comment? No. Okay. Um, here's an example. Who's got Matthew seven twelve? You do. Yes, sir. In everything, therefore, treat people the same way you want them to treat you, for this is the law and the prophets. Wow. Read that again, please. In everything, therefore, treat people the same way you want them to treat you. For this is the law and the prophets. Okay, so let me, let me see if I got what the Master Yeshua just said. The way, I want, the way I want you to treat me, I should treat you. 
Why? Because that's what the Torah and the prophets say. No more than 10 years, 15 years before, Hillel makes a famous saying that is in the Talmud. Whatever is hateful to you, do not do to your neighbor. For this is the whole Torah. The rest is commentary. Now go do it. Guys, that should give you the willies. Here Yeshua is quoting one of the greatest known sages of the Talmud, almost verbatim. And professional Christendom takes it as if he's got a new deal. Got to be. Even John said that, right? A new law I give you. Let you love one another. A new commandment. Even though he says this is the law. Right. He goes, well, it's not really a new commandment. Right. Because it can't be a new commandment. All right. So are you catching it? So Halal's a player. And Yeshua thinks so highly of him that he's almost copying his words verbatim. Is that uncommon? Why you say no? No, it wasn't in, in that culture where it is it is student and disciple. It was um, it was an honor to be able to cite your master when you are giving a teaching. That's why they would say, you know, you know Rabbi right, so and so said in the name of Rabbi. Yeah, because it was a way to it was a way it was two things. It was a way to give honor. To, yes. To the, to the rabbi, to the rabbi, as it were. And get yourself some. And it was also a way for you to be credible, because yeah. if he had, you know, it, you're, you're playing off of his merit, as it were. Precisely. And isn't it interesting that he was able to humble himself, but yet not think it robbery to be equal to God? Amen. I, I, go, yeah. In, in Acts 5, when Peter and John are, are arrested, um, and then they break out because of the angel that's out, they're back in the temple. The Sadducees, they're mad at them because we told you not to teach in this name, but yet you're doing it. And they said, well, we're going to listen to God. But the name in which they were teaching was the name of Yeshua. Amen. So I was teaching in the name of their... Yeah. I mean, it's, it's that constant, same footsteps. Okay. That's how it happened from here. That's why they can tell you, Moses told Joshua... Joshua told, and they name them. They name every guy from Moses all the way down to here. Over a thousand years, almost 1,500 years, they'll name every stinking guy. No difference. This guy said that. I say the same thing. There was a consistency in their teaching. If there's anything I want you to leave with tonight, it's that you're about to start reading the Pirkei Avot, understanding that the Master came right out of them. I'm not saying they were right in everything, but they were right in so much that when you read this stuff, you go, well, yeah. Sounds like the apostolic writings. Okay. There was one definitive point where Hillel was at odds with Shammai, and the Master cited with Shammai. What was the topic?
It was divorce. Marriage and divorce. So, who had Matthew 19? 19, verse 9, please, sir. And I say to you, whoever divorces his wife except for sexual immorality and marries another commits adultery, and whoever marries her who is divorced commits adultery. That is almost verbatim what Shammai said. Almost verbatim. Hillel, on the other hand, said that if, if your wife didn't cook well, you could If she burnt the meal, get <laughs> out of here! That's your fault for not knowing she could cook for you. So. Alright, so I, I, I hope that you see that except for that one point, since Halal was known for two things. He was extraordinarily gracious, especially towards Gentiles. And second, he was extraordinarily gracious when it came to Halakha. He was, he was lenient. He didn't want to put a burden on the people. He wanted them to love God. Yes, sir? To me, it's important to see how even Yeshua wouldn't just side with one person. He would weigh it against the scriptures and in that case he sided with Shemaiah because, because it's closer to the scriptures. Without question. Which is really neat. Just yeah. Kind of the yeah. And, and, I, and I, I think we should do the same, right? We should, we should look at, even if you got a guy who seems to be right on the money every time, we still need to check it against the scripture. We need to look. Because we're not following a guy. We're following a God. That's it. Okay. So our last, uh, our last reference then with regard to Hallel, because I'm trying to focus you on Hallel being the, the of, of the of the beginnings of rabbinic Judaism, the pinnacle of the Zugot, the high point that is, that is followed, paralleled, and seen in the life of the Master and in his apostles. We look then finally in 2 Timothy chapter 2 and verse 15. Is that you? That is. Verse 15. I had my Orthodox Jewish Bible here, but I think that I'll just go for the ESV just to not hear anything more. Do your best to present yourself to God as one approved, a worker who has no need to be ashamed, rightly Rightly handling, or in another version, rightly dividing the word of truth. That's exactly right. Now, who was his teacher? Gamliel. And from whom did Gamliel learn? Hillel. So, tonight, I want us to look at the seven rules of interpretation that Hillel presented. He taught the people and he promoted within the Sanhedrin the seven rules of Hillel. I, I think I'm amazed that this guy without a computer got these seven rules not from a list, not from another book, but from the scriptures. He read the scriptures and came up with seven rules that he found in the scriptures. It's pretty amazing. Okay? Questions? Comments? Yes? We good? We good? Yes? I, I think it's just, uh, I was just going to make the comment that uh, 
demonstrates what we're talking about demonstrates Paul's point about Yeshua being the stumbling block for Jews mm -hmm. because of the similarity of the apostolic scriptures with their Talmud and with their oral Torah. I mean, it's just the way that it starts out, how it starts out with basically like proof of what it, what you're about to read. And then it's got stories, it's got commentary, it's got letters from going out to people, prophecy, and it's like they they completely reject something that's so similar to what they have, mostly because Yeshua is in it. Yeah, it's exactly right. Unfortunately, um, if they don't take the time to read it, then um, it's left to us and the Holy Spirit. I think we come first. All right. The other issue, though, is it's not just what comes as Yeshua, although perhaps I'm right, that's a big piece, but Shaul within, within traditional Judaism has, has a big, almost worse than Yeshua because he's, has a big black eye. he's the guy that taught, was teaching, and promoting actively that the Torah you know, has been done away with and well, let, let's rephrase that for those on the tape. He was accused of actively sure. promoting that the Torah had been done away with. And when he got to Jerusalem, James pulled him aside and said, we, we've got a lot of people that say that you're teaching that the Torah has been done away with. Let's prove to them that they're wrong because we know that you're not teaching that. But my point is that when a, when a Christian tries to, you know, when a Christian tries to talk to a, a practicing Jew oh, about why they don't need to keep the Torah. Coming from, quoting Paul. coming from professional Christendom. So therefore, Paul, yeah. in the mind of traditional Judaism, is almost worse than yeah, that's true. Jesus. That's true. I, I would actually say that he is worse based on Rabbi Joseph Lushka's book. He, he goes through like the Apostolic Scriptures and he breaks it down. And he goes ahead and says, wow, this Jesus guy, he definitely didn't start Christianity. He was a great guy, seemed to live a great life. If anybody started it, it would have been Paul. Yeah, no question. And in, in fact, in the past 20 years, there are more books by Jews that are taking the time to read the scriptures, the apostolic scriptures. And you're getting books. The one I'm reading is Paul was not a Christian. And... And she's making it clear. This is not what Jesus said. Jesus was probably a Pharisee, kept the Torah, encouraged his, uh, his followers to keep the Torah. He ate with Pharisees. And she goes through the whole thing, and you're like, yes, go team! But her idea is to ding Paul. So. I think another aspect we need to look at where Paul was uh, facing a lot of opposition is because of the fact that Gentile outreach, yeah. and he was not proselytizing them according to the, to, to the ritual. That right, exactly. that's exactly right. Yeah. yeah. So, all right. So, what I want to do is uh, is we're we're going to take a break here so that you don't uh, your fannies don't get too sore. But I'd like to go through these seven rules very quickly. Um, they come right from the scripture. We're not going to belabor it. I'm just going to give you a couple of examples uh, from the scripture. So you open up your Bibles. We'll look at those, and then. Uh, We'll call it a night. But um, we're, um, we've been teaching here that we want to do eisegetical or inductive Bible study. That is, we want to let the text speak for itself. 
We want our primary text to be the Bible and nothing but the Bible. We want to draw our conclusions from it and then compare other sources rather than start with the other sources and go to the text and see if we can make it fit. The answer is you can always make it fit. It's why we have so many churches and religions on every corner. So, uh, isogesis or inductive method versus exogesis. Exo, we take it out of. Isogesis is, you know, we're, we're coming out of it. Exogesis, we're going into it. We're bringing it into. Uh, we're bringing stuff to it. Um, Pardes, you guys know that. What's the P? Pushat, which means? The plain, simple meaning of the text. Remez. Oops, what is the R? Remez. Did I give you a hint? It means him. What's the D? Darash, which means to search it out. Oh, it's the same thing as a sermon, right? Or a homily, if you will. What's that S? Sod. Mystery. Sod. Mystery or hidden. So, is Peshat isogetic or exogetic? No. Peshat is the plain, simple meaning of the text. It's isogetical. Peshat is isogetical. You're taking it only from the text. It's what does it say? What does the Talmud say about the Peshat? Nothing can overturn Peshat. Nothing can overturn the plain, simple meaning of the text. If it says that water is wet, it doesn't matter what kind of other stuff you came up with. Water is wet. It can't be dry. Water's wet. Why? Because that's the plain, simple meaning of the text. Okay? Ramez. Question. Are you saying that Peshat is not exegesis? It is not exegetical. It is isogetical. Exogetical. Right. It's not exegetical. Exegetical, I do. So it's not, okay. It's isogetical, not exegetical. It doesn't say exegesis, it says exogesis. Did I spell it wrong? Is that the problem? I spelled it wrong? I'm not sure. Exegesis. How's that? Is that better? Do you know what I mean? Are we are we bringing stuff to the text, or are we taking our in? Terms mean, but you're telling me that the reading of, or the literal plain meaning means we're pulling the meaning out of the text. You're saying that that's not exegetical. It's. I have it backwards. Yeah, exegetical means you're yeah. To me, exegetical means you're reading. Oh, I got it backwards. I beg your pardon. So what are you doing in there? Come sit down here. I. Isogetical. I sorry, Ken. I've got it backwards for you. Versus exogetical. <laughs> I'm on the wrong Jesus. But I had the hand motions right. As an Italian, if we're taking the taking the meaning out of the text, thank you. Exogetical. Thank you very much. Which is, I, I know where I got it messed up. I wrote inductive. Exegetical is an inductive study. Okay? Isogetical means we're bringing stuff to the text. Okay? So, Peshat is an exegetical method. We are 
coming from the text, what does it say? This is what it says. But this is what this commentary says. But we're looking at the plain, simple meaning. We can't overturn it. So, remez is a hint. So, it's a hint to look at another text. Does that, is that, is that a problem? Is it eisegetical or is it exegetical? Well, no, how, how can it? I mean, what text would it remind me of? What's the hint always going to be? Ah! So, therefore, it's exegetical or inductive, right? Which means that it, too, is all right. We're looking only at the scripture, and it reminds me... Wait a minute. I saw the same phrase in this scripture. Well, what am I going to do? The only reason it reminds me is because I'm looking at the plain, simple text, right? So we're good there. Dirash. What am I doing? I'm searching out. I'm taking something out of the scripture that's exegetical, that's good. There's nothing wrong with that. Right? Okay. So... What about this one? You're taking from the Prashad, from the Ramez, from a Josh level. Yeah. You're, you're making a point that can be um, that, that, that can be a little crazy, but it doesn't have to be true. Right? Because okay, well, nothing can... If it doesn't have to be true, then can it possibly be exegetical? Um, no. It can't be, right? No. If, it, if it could possibly not be true... Not necessarily true. Well, except the, ensure the moral and the probability. Right. That it's probably true. Well, it's, it's the moral and the theme that, that, that's the point that you're making. Potentially. How you get there is the part that does not, that does not have to be true necessarily. Exactly. Or if I add up the number of the letters and come up with another word that's the same number. You see what I mean? Not according to the sages. Yeah, the gematria is definitely sowed. So, I'm not saying it's bad. I love the sowed stuff. It's cool. The thing is, it's not in line with the rest of it. That's why it's hidden. That's why it's the weird stuff. That's why it's mystical. It's not bad. It's just different. And you can't, you can't say this is true. Because if you look at the numerical value and find a word that's got the numerical value and give us a great drosh on this versus that, but your dad finds another word that has the same numerical value and comes up with a completely different drosh, what you say may be true, but is not necessarily true. Why? Well, but if, that, if, if what you say is true, <laughs> you, then you, gotta, you have to put drosh in the same category as so. Uh, I would, I would say, without question, yes. And I would do it. Absolutely. Absolutely, and and that's why I'm saying we're moving down where we need to be more and more careful. Which is why the prashat's always the anchor. Exactly, and the further we get away, the more the individual is bringing potentially stuff to it, or our method is bringing stuff to it. You bet. Okay, how we do our drash can really right. flake it out. I like to think this is not good or bad, remember. Right. I like to think of sowed in terms of uh, Daniel, not me. You know, uh, the messenger tells him, you know, the book is sealed yeah. until the time of the end. 
Right. So that's the way I like to think of soul. Right. Everybody here knows my opinion on gematria and where I stand on some of that. Because I think, I mean, if we take gematria and then come up with some elaborate drash to prove something that's already explicated at the Peshat level elsewhere in the text of Scripture, why did we go through that entire? Well, while while that's that's not that's uh, no question there. I think there's value in looking at every every aspect of, of a diamond, yeah, right? Yeah. Numerics, because God is a God of numbers. Well, plain, not from the plane. From the plane. Not only that, but God's using gematria in some way, shape, or form in the text, the six 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 deal. I mean, I mean, it's there. The number of His name—that's gematria. There's no way to get around it. What I'm saying is the Peshat. What I'm saying is the Peshat statement is about gematria. There's, I mean, no argument. There's mention of numbers in scripture. There's no other mention like that in scripture. Like the reference to the mark of the beast. Yes, and and what I'm saying is absolutely. And what I'm saying is that we can't. We don't want to just discount gematria altogether. But at the same time. Well, all I'm trying to point out with this green arrow is we need to be careful. That's what I'm saying. Gamashri should be the primary right. basis that if we can yeah. scripture. Yeah. I think there, there, there's a lot of good good wisdom in your point, though. And, and I think the, uh, while these things are not bad or good, they just are, taking them and putting them in different arrangements is bad. When you emphasize the sod, when you haven't even gone through the Peshat, and you're still... Yeah. And so that's, that's where there is the danger. And I think... While it's not bad to study so, it is bad to study so if you're like me and don't even know what the shot says. And that's what I'm yeah, I, like, don't I, I, I think before the horse, if you haven't gone through the Torah cycle. Exactly, right? And I, I think I said this this uh, this past uh, Shabbat was, uh, we're going to be reading the Pirkei Avot or something like that, but if you haven't read the Torah through yet, you, 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 why are you wasting your time with the Pirkei Avot? So, again, I, I, I think your point is well made. And that is, there's no reason to discount it out of hand. But by the same reason that the sages said, you shouldn't even be studying the Talmud until you're this old. You definitely shouldn't be studying or or researching in the scriptures on the creation story until you're this old, because you may blaspheme. They, They had cautions built in, because you don't want to get down to this end unless you got your butt completely covered on this end. And that's the thing. So, while we've got this mention of gematria, that one time in the scripture, I mean, that's an amazing thing. So, there's something going on there. It's interesting. You can't figure out the whole 666 deal from a gematriaic way, because he doesn't tell you how to do it. You've got to rely on what the sages said. Well, what the sages said, who knows? Bottom line is, if, as you said, the Peshat is the anchor, it's great. But we just need to be careful because we don't want to bring to the text. We want to come out from the text. Yeah, that was just going to be my final statement on this. And that is with the soul. I, I see a real danger in us taking the soul, this supposed hidden thing or revelation we have, and bringing it again now to the text. Yeah. And applying it in that's, every instance. That's so exegetical. That's so eisegetical. That's, that's a problem. Exactly. And, and I think we've got... Absolutely. That's exactly what I'm saying, Ken. And we've got folks in professional Christendom that are saying that if you really pray, fast for a little while, 
read a little bit of my books, you'll learn how to get the hidden meanings in these texts. You'll get to that deeper spiritual level. That's problematic. And we need to we need to be very, very careful with that. Yeah, you know, but I, I think the way that we've been doing it and looking at it, you know, you know, we the whole, you know, we 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 uh, raised that mysticism flag, and we, you know, we're looking at some stuff. And I got to tell you, some of the coolest things I've heard over the past year or two have been in our in our discussions where we're looking at some of the what would we consider the sowed level. But the neat part is, at least the people that are giving it to us, or even me, in a couple of times, we're starting with the Prashant. And the bottom line to it is that we see these principles, as it were, later on in the scripture. Okay. That was good. Good review. Um, Halal's got seven rules that he came up with here. (laughs) 2,000 years ago. I think, since he got them only from the scripture, it would behoove us to know them. We should know them. We should be able to give examples of them. And we should utilize them. Paul did. And I think what you read, as Paul wrote to Timothy and said, you need to be on the money here. You need to rightly divide the word of truth. How do you suppose Paul... a student of Gamaliel, who was a student of Hillel, was taught to rightly divide it. Maybe using Hillel's seven rules. So, that's what we're going to do. You guys just blew through your entire break. Shame on you. All right, good. Let's take a break.